Hi, welcome to Live Culture. I'm your host, Martha Willett-Lewis, and I'm delighted to have Catherine E. McKinley as my guest today. She is the author of the book, The African Lookbook, A Visual History of 100 Years of African Women, which includes her writing and her extraordinary collection of historic photographs of African women from 1870 to 1970. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for being here with us. We're here to discuss your new project, which is the African Lookbook, A Visual History of 100 Years of African Women, which was just put out by Bloomsbury. And it's a really lush and, and beautiful publication of a collection of photographs that you've been working on for years. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. Yeah, Thanks thank so you much so for much having for me. So before I really looked through the entire book, I had seen separate images and pieces of it, but I recently today looked through all of the galleys and it's it's mm -hmm. almost 300 pages long the book and it yeah. covers a huge swath and it's now very clear to me why it needed to be a book rather mm -hmm. than because one of my first questions was well couldn't it be an exhibit or something like that but it's 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 an immense project so mm -hmm. this is your collection that you've yeah. been collecting for how long can you talk about the collection I know you've Mm -hmm. I started really in 1991 when I had just left graduate school and I started to travel to West Africa. Mm -hmm. And initially they were photos that were given to me as kind of parting gifts and by, friends. Photography, by friends or someone in the house where I'd stayed or someone you meet along the road would come and if they knew you were leaving, they'd bring a photo and usually their address. And there's a pretty active pen pal culture. But the mm -hmm. photos were very, even if they were snapshots, they're costly. And so there was a lot of intention in the way that people pose for them. And they were really just lovely photos. And I put them away. They had a certain kind of meaning. But then over the years, I started to turn to them more for fashion research. And they became maybe less memento and more um, a document and kind of information that was useful. So... Did you exchange photographs of yourself as well? Did you did you get pictures of you? Not so much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if I and started what? a correspondence, I would usually return a, a photo. Mm -hmm. Or if I, I would take photos myself of people that I met. So when I went home and developed them, I'd usually send some off in return. And what brought you to West Africa in the first place? Oh, that's kind of a long story. Some of it is you know, it was just a DNA quest. And then mm -hmm. I was studying African literature in particular and also history for years. And I, since I was a child, I was always kind of interested in going. So as soon as I had a little money and had finished school and I had this whole education behind me, I decided to just go off and see what was there. Yeah. Now, later I found out that my father had a family in Ghana. So oh, okay. He, I have sisters there. And so that also became an impetus. He had lived there for a couple of years and was involved in different deal making and hatched a few kids. So you have family there and you have deep roots and you've got friends who were giving you the pictures. So that's a very, very yes. personal start to a collection. But mm -hmm. the, the images that I saw in the book range from the 1850s, I think, to the 1970s. Yeah. It's a huge swath. And of course, who's taking the picture and for what purpose has shifted radically oh, yeah. uh, along the line. And some of it's incredibly uncomfortable and other stuff mm -hmm. is just lovely. But one thing that's really clear 
and I think you mentioned this somewhere in something that I read, it's, it's such a labor of love, mm-hmm. this project. I mean, yeah. even the uncomfortable parts, it's it, the love part radiates out. It definitely mm-hmm. feels like a project that's meant to be shared and that the humanity in it is meant to be enjoyed. And, and mm-hmm. it's um, how did you shift from the very personal, lovely collection of people wearing interesting clothing who you mm-hmm. care about to something that's got sort of wider socio-political mm-hmm. ramifications. I mean, like, and how did you go about getting them? Mm-hmm. I don't even know how you would start collecting some of this stuff. I mean, I realize that there's probably auctions. Yeah, well, partly auctions. Around 1995, I started to do research on Indigo with the idea of writing a book about the history of Indigo. And mm-hmm. that book did come to be in 2004. So as I started to do that research, um, indigo has disappeared in West Africa. You do see really kind of, yeah, oh, it's a, it's a tradition that's really disappeared. You certainly see people wearing it and you can buy it, but it's no longer the organic process that was practiced forever. So now it has chemical elements and it's a whole other kind of thing. And a lot of the clothing or cloth designs have lost some of the meaning that they would have had. So I was trying to figure out like, what did these things look like before BASF was introduced, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I went into the colonial record and, you know, the BASF. Yeah. The dye, the German. Okay. The German dye. Yeah. Oh, those Germans. Okay. Those Germans. <laughs> so they, um, so I was trying to figure out like, what did it look like? And I went into colonial sketchbooks and there was inevitably something wrong. Like the faces were Europeanized, the colors of the cloth were, were off. Mm-hmm. There were all kinds of, they lean towards this kind of like Orientalist renditions right. of things. So then I started thinking about photographs and I didn't realize anything about how early photography was present on the continent, but it was roughly 1860 when the first photographers and first cameras arrived. And so I, I just started to dig into that record and they were lovely. They were all in a lot of mission archives and that sort of thing. And you just sit there and feel like, my God, you know, if, I, if only I could have more access to this sort of thing. And then as I was traveling, I would again meet people and they would show you a family album or, you know, some evidence of something. And I realized that the photos were really in people's personal possessions. So, yeah. so you approached people on an individual Yeah, I was living uh, soon after that. I had a Fulbright grant and I was living in Ghana for roughly four years. And when I went to cloth traders, they would also let me look in albums or, you know, the older women in my community would let me sit and look through albums and that sort of thing. And sometimes they had multiples of their photos and they would give them to me. And Mm -hmm. other times people had things. Some of the antiquities traders were selling things because at the same time, the Western art market was discovering African photography and it had yeah. become this, you know, immensely lucrative thing. And so, what, what period of time was this approximately? When was Well, this I would say Seydou Keita and Malik Sidibe really became known to American art markets around 1997, 96, oh, okay. 97. So fairly recently, fairly. Yeah. Recently. yeah. And the, you know, they were just enormously expensive. The photos were enormously expensive but people again had them in their personal archives. So I started to look also at auctions. There were always the gifts. You would travel somewhere like I'd go to Niger 
and you'd be somewhere where there was a very remote town and there'd be a photo studio there. And as advertising, they would paste the photos on the wall of the, the studio. Mm-hmm. And you could, you could usually buy a couple of them and you know, it wasn't such a, right. people were suspicious or curious about why you wanted them. What do you want to do with them? Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. What do you want this picture of somebody else for? Right. Yeah. So it was, it was, I'm sorry, it was about, you know, kind of like love or real attraction to the photography, but they were also, um, they were costly for most African sitters, but they were also not so far out of range that they wouldn't give you something. And are most of the pictures, so I guess I want to go into a little bit about the fashion element of this mm-hmm. because it's such an important part of it. And, and for listeners who don't know, indigo traditionally is, it's a plant, comes from a plant and it mm-hmm. grows and you have something that's a little bit like a yeast, a mother of indigo that gets carried, that's kind of mm-hmm. alive, that goes from pot to pot. And so using a synthetic dye makes a, a massive difference. But also in Africa, the textile trade has been vastly eroded by by our textile industry, basically by mm-hmm. us shipping things over there, um, unwanted stuff mostly. Mm-hmm. And But before that, colonial intervention into the fabric and the textile industry was very important, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, on the Indonesian fabric. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. About the Indonesian trade. Yes. Yeah. But the Dutch were traveling regularly to Indonesia, to colonies in Indonesia. And they were, um, they had in mind industrializing batik fabrics. Mm -hmm. And so they put a lot of effort into doing this industrial process in Holland and then trading with Indonesians. It's a kind of wax resist and dyeing, right? Yes, yes. So they were replicating those cloths in factories in Holland. And when they were introduced to Indonesians, they they didn't care about them at all. You know, they didn't like the kind the static nature of this factory. They weren't good enough. Exactly. Exactly. So and the colors were were not correct and that sort of thing. So it was a complete failure, but they were loading the cloths onto ships that were going, that were stopping in bulking stations on the West African coast and in Ghana in particular, because one of the forts in Ghana was one of the largest um, bulking and largest points in the slave trade. So, and is also one of the oldest or the oldest European structure in West Africa. So they took on in Ghana in particular, they had a real market in Ghana. And there's some, some people have said that is because of the large number of Ghanaian men who were sent to Indonesia as soldiers who were conscripted in Indonesia since the 1700s. And I think there is something, there are definitely connections. You can look at the way that men wear textiles and is very similar to Indonesian, you know, draping styles and that sort of thing. But the claws had a, a real you know, real effect in Ghana. And that, I think that's really owed to the fact that West African women in particular have a real penchant for, for what's new. They mm-hmm. are absolute lovers of style. There's yes. a, a real, as much as we talk about tradition and there are certainly aspects that are deep tradition. There's also a lot of interest in what's new 
what's the latest and in things from abroad. And there's been evidence of that for, for centuries. So they so took off there. This, this brings up, you know, the way that uh, colonialism and the Paisley pattern during the Napoleonic mm-hmm. Wars became the, like the height of fashion Paisley shawls, which then got made in, in Scotland. Yeah. Weirdly, and then, and then uh, translated to fashion wear for French and European women. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's sort of an interesting parallel there. It is also true that, that people were sewing their own clothes Mm-hmm. And so fabric meant something kind of different yes. if you're custom making your own things. And you talked a little bit of, in the book about sewing machines and mm-hmm. the camera as sort of uh, dual technologies at the same time mm-hmm. arriving in, in Africa. And I thought that was really fascinating. Um, yeah. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because I love, yeah. love that. It's a, I mean, it was a really interesting confluence. They arrived at the same time or roughly the same time. And my thesis, which, you know, I'm happy for people to poke holes in, is that those two instruments for African women were two of the most important instruments in their ability to to turn colonial tools in their favor and make a living and sometimes far surpass that by accruing great wealth and having political power as well. And then also as a means to, to up turn the colonial record in representation and that sort of thing. So at this at the same time that they were using the camera to, as the British said, categorize, subjugate, and divide, yes. African women were able to author their own images. And that historical record is so, so important. There's something really special about clothing that's that's not well so one of the funny things about mass production is that people want things that are mass produced and new and glossy and shiny but custom made things fit you perfectly Mm -hmm. and are a completely different kind of fashion i remember going to france for the first time and being on the metro in paris and seeing these women african women wearing these incredible custom made Mm -hmm. gowns that i had never seen anything like it before in my life and and you can see it on social media there's all kinds of groups for it and so forth and it's still mm-hmm. a really big thing. Is yes. Your dress made, you know, by your dressmaker specifically for you. Yeah. Sort of competing. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about the scope of the images. You mm-hmm. know, you go from ones that are that are taken by for either for a white male audience, uh, European audience. So, or ones that are sort of supposedly ethnographic in some way or another, like they're stereotyping mm-hmm. somebody as like a type of person, a villager or whatnot. And then other mm-hmm. ones that are, and then you move very clearly towards ones where the, the women are the, it is for them. Yeah. The pictures are being taken. And there's a, such a change mm-hmm. between those pictures. Um, yeah. You are listening to WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org. This is Live Culture, and I'm your host, Martha Willett Lewis. Live Culture is a monthly program about art and visual culture. And my guest this month is Catherine E. McKinley, author of The African Lookbook. I mean, the book is really interested at the same time that the camera was this colonial tool and arrived, arrived as an instrument of empire. African photographers stepped in very quickly as well. So almost immediately when the machinery was introduced, African men, no women, took up the camera. And there were active studios. A lot of the African photographers were moving along the trade routes from 
southern Morocco to Angola along the coast and then up into the interior. And so their, their photographic record is, is immense and really very, very interesting and very different from the European photographs. So the book really is primarily interested in African photographies, African authors, African female sitters, but there is some contrast as well with what did the colonial studio look like? And when I use the term colonial studio, I don't mean just European photographers, but you know, Middle Eastern, African, et cetera, Caribbean, African-American people who are also working at the same time. So it's a real melange and it shows a real diversity in what from nation to nation, artist to artist, you know, what did it look like? There's so much diversity in the picture taking. Can you describe for me like what the difference between uh, a Cape Verdean photographer mm -hmm. and I don't know what, a Moroccan photographer? I don't know, you choose, uh -huh. but, but I'm, I'm curious about what what you think the, the difference. Yeah, the, I mean, some of it is very clearly about national cultures and something like, let's use Senegal in particular because Senegal was one of the first sites and where there was a lot of activity and a lot of varied kind of studios. Um, some of the differences are in backdrops, like their ornateness or their plainness. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of fun because you, you see very expensive chairs that were obviously imported from Europe and <laughs> elaborate backdrops that are more Euro style or more Orientalist. There's so much difference. And sometimes you see sitters who move between different studios. And that was very much a kind of aspirational thing. You, you went where you could afford and you hope to have the money to afford the next person. Mm -hmm. So you may see a sitter who was at a lesser known African studio and then moved to a kind of famous African studio and then appears later in a European studio. And there's, there's just a real difference in, and what you see there are even between um, perhaps two brothers who took up photography at the same time. Um, one studio maybe is much more Euro style and modernist. And the mm -hmm. other one is kind of more old, old worldly. A lot of European and American studios were very much like stage sets. So the, mm -hmm. there would be a backdrop exactly. that would be fake something or other, you know, and it, and, the, and it was a very formal situation where you were, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you'd get dressed up and you'd stand there among the, the rattan chairs and potted palms and, yes. and <laughs> stuffed things, a very formal. And the, the whole theater construct of it is kind of interesting as well. It is, yeah. Some of the pictures were personal family mm -hmm. photographs. And then some of the, the colonial ones looked like they were postcards. They yes. had stamps on them. So they were being, they were actually being marketed. Yes. And in the West. A there is some cross, there, you know, there's some hybridity between the two. You can mm -hmm. see certain photos that are printed on postcards where it's apparent that it was a photo that was commissioned by a family and then it ends up being circulated as a postcard. So people were literally, you, or you'll see the same image that has a couple different authors' names on it or different hmm. studio names on it. Mm -hmm. So, or some images that were taken in, say Cote d'Ivoire and they end up looking as if they came from Angola and they'll be labeled as an Angolan print. So the, the circulation is in and of itself is really interesting. It's worth studying. It is. No, how things moved around is fascinating to me. And, the, and, the, and then people as well, you know, you see yeah. 
you see people from Madagascar in Senegalese studios around 1910. And, you know, it just opens up all these questions about the, about immigration, about people's travels, et cetera. From a fashion point of view, is this something that you've always been interested in? in it's both a personal journey in terms of personal identity, but the, mm -hmm. the fashion part of it does seem to be a big, just even naming it African lookbook. Uh -huh. So I, I originally saw it as, as a way of positively filling a void where when you erase people's histories, mm -hmm. you're not, you, you've taken away the image of themselves and the, their past selves. And this is a yes. positive way of, of reclaiming that space. It is. Um, the, the lookbook is a kind of ode to my mother, who's a historian. And, okay. You know, she's not, she doesn't enjoy fashion at all. She's kind of has a disdain for fashion. And when I was a kid, I was definitely like the frilly girl. Who, I was Love the frustrated clothes. girl who didn't have any of that stuff. Yeah. And when I started to be able to acquire it for myself, she would, you know, she would always say it has to have substance. You know, she was always harping on this idea of substance. So substance think, being the content, not the material. Yeah, stuff. not the material, right. but just like it has to mean something and there's no way fashion could mean anything. So in a way, it's a kind of tribute to her, mm -hmm. you know, that she, that had a real impression on me, but also, you know, it's a lookbook is, it's supposed to be light. It's supposed to be, you know, only right. as deep as the look. Right. Yeah. So, yes. So one of the things that, that I did think it was going to, you know, it has the look of a glossy coffee table book and, mm -hmm. it, and it is to a certain extent, it's a visual feast and it's really beautifully designed, Thank but you. The subject is incredibly pithy and it spans mm -hmm. a huge, a, a large swath of time, but also enormous changes politically. Mm -hmm. um, got post-independence and, and colonial images and then mm -hmm. images that are clearly so different and moving towards the now. Yeah. Um, and then there's the feminist aspect of it, which mm -hmm. also sings very loudly in there. So it, I think you definitely have the content. Can you talk a little bit about some of that? I, mm -hmm. You have it divided into four chapters. Mm -hmm. One of them is heritage. The next one is with a certain eye, the colonial studio. The next one is dressing and undressing and then clothes for a new nation, independence and post-independence. Mm -hmm. So if you could like recap. Yeah, her the heritage, the first chapter is really a collection of images by women that are very much self-authored. They would have gone to a studio, commissioned them, worn their best clothing. And you can really, you can see their full agency. You know, they take down the camera. The camera is there for them. They're, they're mm -hmm. not there for the camera. Right, right. <laughs> not at all. So, um, so that's really what I tried to do was to establish, uh, you know, to really revise our notion about what the images are. Because I've talked to people who said they always felt almost felt afraid to open the book because they thought they'd be confronted with all these kind of anthropological images and yeah. seeing this same thing all over again. So I, I really wanted to set the record. I think I was looking at an interview with you and somebody described it as the National Geographic lens, which has a flattening effect, which I yeah. thought was a very good way of describing that. Indeed, <laughs> yes, indeed, absolutely. it's objectifying the person. And, and also I was, you know, some of the people are very, very young. So that's yes. another sort of upsetting aspect about this. Yes, exactly. To, to layer onto that. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was really the first intention. And then I wanted to bring in the more disquieting images. So mm -hmm. with a certain eye, there's an expression in Ghana, you looked at me with a certain eye. Mm. So and what does that mean exactly? <laughs> and it really means it's really saying, you know, I see you looking at me and acknowledge that there's some there's a thought between us. Yeah. There's, it's you that. Know, that yeah. Yeah. There's nice. something loaded in the gaze. So that's really a look because in the colonial studio, I'm not really just talking about European photographers, but anybody working in a colonial economy. So that was right. African photographers as well. You see, um, so it was really about looking at where, what's the gap between the photographer and the sitter. Mm -hmm. And that's some of what I'm exploring there. And those images go back to 1870. So it's the, it's really getting the complete arc from the earliest photographies through independent. It really is different having a photograph that is made for the person mm -hmm. to enjoy themselves versus something yes. that's going to be a postcard, regardless of you know what other intent you have with the picture. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's, it, it, it's so apparent right away. <laughs> right away. And then yeah. dressing and dressing is the chapter that probably I've had people, people have had strong reactions to it. Mm -hmm. It includes nudes almost entirely, nudes mm -hmm. or partial nudes. It includes things like um, tattooing and scarification and that sort of thing. And my intention there was really to show that, that the body is very much about clothing and dress as much as fabric is, because the skin is the essential fabric. And it's the foundation of, of African dress. Not that everybody was running around without clothing, but that most bodies that were marked were marked in a way to show beauty. You know, skin mm -hmm. was used as, as a tapestry or, you know, as a canvas. And that a lot of the scarification became the foundation for designs on cloth. And they were meant to wear together to show this kind of layering of cloth. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So there's a photo of one woman who we see from the back and she has, um, her entire midriff is covered with, heavy scars. And then she has one of the Indonesian cloths on. And it's a really beautiful, like the patterning is just brilliant. And that was, that was an effect that people sought after. And then later on, when European traders became wise to that, they started to design textiles in those traditions. That's a really interesting re reciprocity. So mm -hmm. is, is there a meaning in the scarification images? I mean, they're, they're patterns. But mm -hmm. is, it, is it a kind of code or a, a symbol of where you belong? Or is there a reading mm -hmm. into it? Or is it, is it really meant as a decorative item? It's, it's both. Some of it was also medicinal. Some of the oh. scarification was, for, was protective. Some mm -hmm. of it was for, um, it was literally how they administered um, medication. So mm -hmm. if somebody was sick and perhaps close to dying, they might do the scarification and rub herbs and things into it. Presumably the people making the patterns of the cloth that were commercially available mm -hmm. wouldn't know those meanings. So they would just be sort of taking them and abstracting them and using exactly. them as a pattern. Yes, like for instance, um, Nigerians in particular, Yoruba people love lace. Lace is one of the most prestigious cloths. They invest really? enormous amounts of money in lace. And they wear very elaborate, like diaper lace that has, you know, it's just like, it is, a, it should be. Do they make the, lace? No. See, it's all being made in, in Europe. 
Right. And it was introduced by European traders. There was always, there was a long interest in lace across West because Africa. Because lace is, of course, the most costly fabric is. there is. And, yeah. it, it, you know, if anybody out there has, has looked into making it, it's, it's tiny mm-hmm. threads being held on bobbins on these cushions and it takes hours and hours exactly. and the finest lace, thousands of stitches per square inch on the finest lace. Right. So, so there it's, were, always, it's always been a symbol of, of wealth, of yeah. prestige, of, of luxury. Well, Nigerians love it. And there were, there was diplomatic men in a diplomatic corps coming from, I think they were Swiss, but I, don't quote me, but they studied the market and they <laughs> developed a product very much like the Dutch lit, did with, with wax cloth. Mm-hmm. And they introduced it to the Nigerian market. And it's, it's been, you know, just an, a source of enormous wealth. And is the lace overlaid over other textiles or is it? Sometimes, yeah, they'll sometimes mix it, but mm-hmm. usually they're wearing layers and layers of lace. So a typical male or female outfit, maybe three or four layers of of lace. Oh, I can't wait to look this so they're, up. I, they're heavy, I really have to brilliant. See this. I have to see it. Yeah, it's one of, I think it's one of the wonders of the world, actually. <laughs> so, so if you go to a party, a Yoruba party in Nigeria and see 300 people in laces. Elaborate in lace outfits. Yeah. yeah. And, is it, is it multicolored? Sometimes wearing lace? the same colors and same patterns. Mm-hmm. Like you'll see a large group of a, a clan or a family or association wearing the same pattern. And it's just brilliant. That's fantastic. You are listening to WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org. I'm Martha Willett-Lewis, the host of Live Culture. And this month I'm in discussion with Catherine E. McKinley, the author of the new book, The African Lookbook, a gorgeous survey of photographs of African women from 1870 to 1970. Uh, mm-hmm. In your book, there's there's names for some of the patterns of fabric, and mm-hmm. one of them was something like "There is no more velvet." Yes, yes, that's Can a beautiful. Can you talk about that? I love that as a name. <laughs> I know it's a beautiful, beautiful name. The indigo adare cloth, which is a Yoruba cloth from Nigeria, again, is has a tradition of naming, and they're all brilliant names. They're kind of aspirational names or celebratory names. But there was a time when there was a sumptuary ban and velvet and other European cloths were removed from the market. This is something that's happened for hundreds of years intermittently. And so the Yoruba dyers, the women who are dyeing indigo cloths, did a very, very finely stitched, gorgeous, gorgeous cloth that was called No More Velvet. So is it, is it woven fabric? Yeah, it's it's hand stitched with either raffia or other kind of heavy thread. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very elaborate. So it it gives that kind of texture. That's fabulous. And what are some of the other fabric names? Um, With indigo in particular, there's another very famous cloth. It's Ibadan is sweet. Ibadan is one of the, you know, a major town Mm -hmm. and a mostly Yoruba town. And it's just a beautiful cloth in a grid and it has all of the symbols of the town, including the columns of a hall and, you know, birds and wonderful various, various things. It's really fabulous. And then in the wax claws, they, wax claws are a little bit more about life's vicissitudes. So you'll have a wax cloth that says something like, you're not smart like Anansi, Anansi the spider. The <laughs> right, Anansi the spider. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's, a, it's a cloth that has a spider design. And it's really 
it's a it's in a sense a kind of like a cautionary thing it's mm-hmm. letting people know like you know bring it down <laughs> you're not yeah. like a nancy <laughs> so there's another one called your foot my foot which mm. means if he goes out i go out it's a it's about marriage and so, really so about if- there's kind of wordplay in here <laughs> along with the the imagery like everybody yeah. would be expected to recognize what that yeah. would be there were there were very few of the Dutch claws that were really taken up by African women and particularly the women that trade it. So the Dutch mm-hmm. would be sending, you know, 500 claws a year to West African outposts. And then the, the market women, the women that owned the stores or traded, would kind of put it out on the street and see how people responded. And if people responded in a way that this kind of naming was generated, then it was considered a really like a good cloth. a good one, and everybody yeah. didn't you know every cloth didn't make it. <laughs> so that's an interesting sort of crowdsourcing mm-hmm. way of of that's interesting. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. And the ones that have named the ones that were given names organically have become part of you know hundreds of years of everyone recognizes it. It's something that would be important to have among your possessions if you were married. You would expect to have good cloth. So they'd be those wax claws that were named. So were people collecting fabric and kind of, I, I won't say hoarding it, but, but collecting it in the, for future use or yeah, well, as a really, commodity? It is a commodity, absolutely. So those, those Dutch wax cloths in particular have never devalued. Mm-hmm. So if, if you were given a cloth as part of your dowry, it was, it was a security. So currency would devalue from one day to the next. You might not know where local currency was on the market, but your cloth was always this, this kind of thing that you could trade. And also because cloth is so central to any kind of social institution and whatsoever, like if somebody dies, you bury them with cloth. So it's the kind of thing that, you know, if you're, if your husband dies, you would have to bury your husband with enough cloth to show real respect for him. But, but it's not used as a shroud. It's used. It would be used, it would be used on the body, but also just in the casket. Interesting. So the more, you know, when you were displaying the body, you would want to be able to display that cloth because that was a way of honoring the the person. Fascinating. It's also currency for the beyond. Right. That's, that's lovely. Yeah, it is. It's really lovely. There was one photograph that I didn't quite understand Mm -hmm. the explanation on it. It shows a, a young woman and it's one of the older photographs and she's not smiling and she has a large bead that you said was a Venetian bead and that it cost as much as its weight in gold or Mm -hmm. a number of slaves. And I wasn't quite sure what the backstory on that image is, as you know, is it, is that her bead? Who's it? it, Yeah. It's something that she would have been given by a family member. That's a really curious picture. It it kind of, it's haunting. I find it haunting Mm -hmm. because it's from roughly 1870. Yeah. It's a carte de visite by Hostalier, which was, who was a French photographer, very, very well known. And she's so abject. And yet her, the bead and even her cloth shows that she was a noble. So she was obviously right. somebody with a title, but I suspect that she was probably indentured or enslaved. So, right. you know, they were people who were constantly spoils of war. I'm not sure why she necessarily would have been left with the bead given its value, but. Could they have put it on her for the photograph? It's possible. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah absolutely. Or, or for whatever reason, she may have been left to, you know, left with it. It is a really, it's haunting. It's a lot haunting, of the, yeah. a lot of the faces, the, how the faces confront you in these pictures is pretty haunting. And, yeah. and many of them are completely joyous. Like the more recent ones, it's, yeah. it's there was one of the two yay girls. Yes. That's which is wonderful picture. where they're they've got some halter tops and sunglasses and are kind of leaning yeah. into each other and it's absolutely lovely. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and yeah, and that's great. Musical so that's, movement uh, there. by Abdurman Sakle. Sakle mm-hmm. is a he is a Moroccan photographer who immigrated to Mali and lived there for years and married a Malian woman, had a family. He's a brilliant photographer. He's really been overlooked by the art historical and gallery people but, but hopefully um, not by you and your collection no no the I mean people love that photo I it's, it's probably a great the one. one that the press asked for the most it's lovely yeah it's absolutely fantastic but I love that picture because there's so much joy and so much comfort with the photographer and the backstory of it is that it's a post-independence photo and then I think it's 1965 or something and at the same time there were these kind of there was like a re-education movement in Mali so people did not you know people of the new nation the vanguard of the new nation did not like the idea of these young primarily Muslim girls you know growing afros wearing bell bottoms and everything else that they were wearing wearing yeah their shoulders out yeah. So what happened was that a lot of youth were the 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 fashion was very much a part of of youth protest, mm-hmm. and people read it in a very facile way. They say, "Oh, it's about like America and loving America and Europe, and it's a post colonial nightmare and that sort of thing." But it really was about their articulation of of a kind of freedom and a kind of Africanness that their parents didn't understand. But they would go out to these parties and then sometimes get picked up by the re-education police and, you know, beaten, sent to, sent yeah. to schools, et cetera. So I read it as, as a sign of freedom. And yeah. I think that's what I really love about it is how sort of happy and, and kind of, they look good, yeah. but they look very unselfconscious too. They're yep. just sort of like, they're just enjoying themselves. Yeah and and being themselves and there's something very kind of modern in quotes about what they're yeah. wearing right they're yeah, they're absolutely. you know um, and i think they would have they wouldn't it have looks, bought those they wouldn't have bought those tops they would have had to buy the fabric and, and make them. make it to a seamstress yeah 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 so yeah yeah is a is a musical movement yeah british british right. movement. so it really is a kind of crossover and you can see why the yeah. education police would be they were they were all over that them. right yeah <laughs> so music plays a big part of fashion mm-hmm. and i'm assuming that it plays a big part in in africa as well and i'm saying africa is, as if it's all one place is yeah. there is there a specific fashion that that you know the, that mm-hmm. goes along with music in these countries? yeah definitely there was a lot of crossover in music too you know there's mm-hmm. a lot of movement between different countries so right like what you're wearing to dance in and to meet in public and Uh those kinds of those kinds of situations sort of create fashion even without music videos but once you get music videos then you get something even sort of deeper stronger yeah but they were there was fashion was just the the whole idea of like the psychedelic 
and during the post-independence period that was just so strong and you saw it across the board but hairstyles yeah. were being named after songs oh um, great yeah you know, they were kind of driving each other at the same time like there was a there would be particular songs named after hairstyle or the hairstyle would grow out of the music and then at the same time there might be a meaning that referenced um, uh, some new architecture or something like that so it's never kind of one static thing it was it was culture it was architecture it was growth you know mm -hmm. city growth and that sort of thing all at once it was a kind of romance with modernity yeah I guess. absolutely yeah, yeah and then one you know in Lagos something would come up and then someone in Mali would answer back with a similar style and it would move uh -huh. back and forth you know and compete I assume there's yeah. a little bit of it right very yeah. and you know in each nation there were there was a lot of immigration people were moving quite a bit for work in particular so right. there was a lot of exchange that's it's fun to watch does this the, your collection stops and sometime in the 70s mm -hmm. yeah. um, are you continuing to collect are you going into oh yeah my personal collection or? yeah my personal collection goes to is contemporary so I have mm -hmm. a lot of you know I'm kind of looking at all the time at what's coming out so the with the book we decided to stop in 19, in the 70s towards the end of independent for you know for the 54 nations I mean it went on longer than that but I think the other marker was that was the introduction of color photography right which really changed the culture of the studio because it was no longer so costly and it was coming in primarily by Asian merchants so mm -hmm. it I mean they, they were Asian photographers since the the 1800s but it just changed the culture of photography it was really really it was beyond expensive to process film you know, you would go and it would be processed in a machine. So right. know, just like everywhere else, you lost right. the art of... Right, the artisanal part of it that also made it yeah. possible to do it on a small scale. Right. right, and then it was a point and shoot camera as much as a studio, so... Well, and I have to say around the 1970s, all of the photographs from my childhood mm -hmm. are, they look like they were developed in ketchup. The okay. quality of color film <laughs> in the 70s compared to, you know, the 1940s, they had really beautiful color. Yeah, film. no, very definitely. expensive, but beautiful. But the, the 70s was kind of a low point. In, yeah. And so it was pretty bad. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Yes. Well, it all has a very specific look. Yeah. Um, Even when when I was really in like in the 90s, when I was living in Ghana and I was taking a lot of photographs, I would send it back home. Mm -hmm. to be processed and then I'd get doubles and they, somebody would send it back because it would cost almost double or three times the I'm sure the amount yeah and it was already expensive here yeah I remember it was very expensive here too yeah it, it changes everything and then of course presumably at some point Polaroids came in yeah and people were busy taking their own beautiful yeah. color pictures so how long did it take you to put this book together this it's really feels a like time. a long time labor of love. I can feel there's a kind of simmer in the content and how it, it all yeah. goes together. But actually, from the moment you just, when did you decide to do it? You know, I'm almost embarrassed to say it was not too long after I published Indigo I, that I mm -hmm. presented it to Bloomsbury. I had a contract and, you know, I'm a single parent, life intervenes, but I was working on it pretty steadily, but and I did at one point turn in, you're the first person I'm saying this to, I turned in a, a draft of the manuscript and my editor, I remember meeting with her and she kind of looked at me like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
and it was really upsetting and I had to because she it, didn't think it was enough you didn't get it you know she yeah. didn't get it and it's not hmm. she's, she's she's wonderful it's nothing to do with her but it was just that it took a long time to get my head I didn't have a lot of education about the photography itself yeah it took a long time to collect it to educate myself and to kind of get a handle on what like how to handle this big idea of fashion so well, yeah. it's fashion and it's politics, right. and it's gender and it's, you know, it's, it, there's all kinds of things about yeah. power and, and agency. It's yeah. not just one thing. That's what's incredible about it. it yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of times it's, it's easy to start something instinctively, like you instinctively probably knew all along what you were after. Yeah. The, um, it took a while, like when the book was done, particularly the editorial process really it really brought everything together. You know, it was a hard, it was a wonderful process. It was hard because we were asking a lot of really hard questions and moving a lot of information and images around. But it was really, it was kind of wonderful because when it was done, it felt like it was a mastery of what I knew. Yeah. And what I had available to me. And it's not that it's with, you know, without flaws or that sort of thing, but it was like, finally, I've put this together in a way that could mean something to somebody else. I think it's incredibly meaningful. I think it's very clear and very well organized given 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 the the scope and breadth of the entire thing. You are listening to WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming online at wpkn.org. This is Live Culture and I'm your host Martha Willett Lewis. Live Culture is a monthly program about art and visual culture. And my guest this month is Catherine E. McKinley, author of The African Lookbook. I'm yeah. very curious about what your what your plans are for the archive for the collection uh-huh. now, and you've kind of opened it up to the public in a certain way with these mm-hmm. books. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean my idea all along because it's contested, you know, and I, I completely accept the way that it's contested. What the hell am I doing with, you know, I ha- I have thousands of photos. Yeah. And what the hell am I doing with all of this? What's the meaning? How do I make meaning of it even beyond the book? And I don't, you know, I reject the idea of like, oh, these are my, these are personal objects. This is just for me. I do feel like it's for someone else. So I'm thinking all the time about how, how to do the kinds of things that I want to do, which in particular would be more exhibition in Africa, more here as well collaborations with African women artists in particular, Mm -hmm. but, you know, but also others. Ah, that brings up a last point, which Mm -hmm. you collaborated in the book with, you have a collage artist Mm -hmm. who is Frida Oracabo. Oracabo. Yeah, she's based in Oslo. She grew up as a Nigerian father and she's become, I mean, she's just a brilliant artist and she was at the last Venice Biennale. She's become a major major, major player. And she's in the book. She's made collages using the archive that are in the book. Yeah. We just, we, we kind of met informally. We have friends in common. And I asked her very sheepishly if she would do something for the book. And I thought maybe she would send me something that would make it to the cover. Right. (laughs) And she sent me, you know, more than 12 collages and they, they were just, they're they're wonderful. So brilliant. Yeah. So that, that was the first really formal collaboration. And I'd like to do much more of that. 
And the cover of the book, the cover image, mm -hmm. shows one of the photographs being held over somebody's face. Is that yeah. one of her collages or is that? No, that's, that um, mm -hmm. that's a friend of mine, Ibrahim Atam. He's, mm -hmm. um, he's from Senegal. He's a well-known photographer. And he also is an, he has an archive, a brilliant, brilliant archive himself. And he's been really dedicated to collecting and restoring a lot of the photo history of Senegal, like all those really important early studios. So Fantastic. This is something he, this was a, a series of work that he did with some of his own archival pieces. So it seems perfect for the book because of course it shows somebody looking at another woman, but also possibly themselves, mm -hmm. sort of about self-reflection in a certain yeah. way. Yeah, I think we're running out of time. Okay. <laughs> and I've had a great time talking to you. I want to oh, thank you, you, Catherine e. McKinley, for talking to me so much. It's oh, been really a great. pleasure. And I'm wondering for listeners out there who want to see the project, mm -hmm. are there websites? Can they get, where would yes. one obtain a copy of the book? The book should be with every, with all major booksellers, support your local seller. Mm -hmm. If you have to, you can go to Amazon. Mm, no. And, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> And um, I have a website, www.catherinemckinley.com and also okay. the mckinleycollection.com. And, and that has its own website where you can look through the collection yeah, a little you bit. You can yeah. see not, not so much and I'll change up the pictures because I'm still, I'm still trying to make some decisions about how and what the best way is to share what's there. But a lot of it is there. You can feel free to send me messages. And Lovely. You know, it feels like a very living it. project, which I yeah. really appreciate. I appreciate the organic nature of this. Yeah, so. I, I feel like down the road, it will find its way to an institution somewhere. And I hope so. It'll be there yeah. for everyone. Yeah. All right. Well, Catherine E. McKinley, thank you very much thank for being you. on Live Thanks Culture so much. this month. Great. This has been thank great. You. Thank you for listening to Live Culture. I'm your host, Martha Willette Lewis, and I will be back on the final Saturday of next month from 11 until 12 noon with another discussion about visual arts and culture. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
Assise altérée, arrumage brisé Le flot de mes larmes s'emballe Ardente est ma peine Mais dans mes veines d'afro-progressiste Le son bambara chargé d'espoir brûle À contre-jour, mon hardiesse persiste À contre-courant, mes convictions résistent Je crois en la sagesse et l'intégrité L'assurance, la dignité et l'humilité Grandissantes dans le cœur de tes enfants Par la justesse de leurs actes Par leur union et leur constance Connivence et respect mutuel Ils te soulageront des mots qui te rongent Je t'aime, Afrique Afrique, je t'aime Kalamande Battered, wounded Africa, why do you keep the role of the beautiful, naive, deceived? Yet my faith doesn't know failure, more intense than ever. My faith doesn't know failure I love you beautiful Africa Africa, je t'aime 